Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. In the spirit of the holiday season and enforced family time, we thought we'd do an episode on the best and worst financial advice given to us by family members and friends. We pulled a fair number of people at Full HQ, as well as we're also drawing on some personal experiences here. Names will not be named, but you know who you are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get started with uh, the, this is in no particular order, but the, the, the one thing that I hear over and over again is, as terrible advice, is carry a credit card balance to improve your credit score. Um, I've heard this a lot, and I think it's because people don't really understand how credit scores are calculated. Um, credit agencies really want you to pay off your balance in full every month, if at all possible. And this is because this ends up factoring into your credit utilization ratio, which is basically how much you have spent that month over your total credit limit on all your credit cards. If it's over 30%, credit agencies are like, man, I don't know if this person can pay this back. And so they start lowering your credit score. So if you're carrying a balance from month to month, you're less likely to have that good below 30% credit utilization ratio that they're really looking for. Um, the other thing that's really important, even if you can't pay off your balance in full every month right this minute, is paying on time. Um, this isn't, I mean, everyone knows you're supposed to pay on time, but it's something that I frequently talk to some of my friends and they'll be like, oh yeah, I, I forgot to pay my credit card this month. It's okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll, it's just a couple going to be a couple days late. It's no big deal. I'm like, but it is a big deal. It's affecting your credit score every time you do that. And I guess that's a weird thing for a 26-year-old to worry about, but I worry a lot for them. Um, yeah, I, I would say that's a good thing to worry about. I mean, your credit score at your age, Gabby, it, it, I'm, I'm a little bit older, not, not too much older. I don't want to reveal how much older I may or may not be. But, but yeah, this is where in that point in our life where credit scores matter because we're going to be buying houses. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and credit scores, just in case you don't know, um, are really important for, for big purchases like that because it dictates what kind of uh, terms you get on your loan. So the better your credit score, the less you're going to have to pay in interest, um, which will save you thousands of dollars over the course of your lifetime. Um, it, it, yeah. And just keep in mind that you know, when you're talking about credit score, it, you know, Gabby's going through these five elements. Just keep in mind that Look, this is, there's just a formula that calculates your credit score. So after you, you kind of hear the rest of these five things, all you have to do is just go look it up online, figure out the exact formula, and then just kind of tweak your own personal behaviors kind of around that. Yeah. Um, I just We have nothing to do with this company, but I just kind of want to put a plug out there for creditkarma.com. Um, they let you monitor your credit score for free um, for more than – because most credit agencies will send you a credit report for free once a year. Um, so you only have a chance to check it three times, but Credit Karma monitors it constantly, so you can log in and check whenever you want. They update it every month, um, which I think is a really helpful tool for people who are just starting out or who, like me, are worried about identity theft because, I don't know if I told you this, Maxfield, my fingerprints and social security number got stolen. Um, I didn't do it. <laughs> I think I think it was hackers. I can't remember from what country it was. Uh, I had security clearance, and that's out there in the world now. Fantastic. That's great. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, worst advice number two, it is uh, buy gold. Um, and I'm not talking like, you know, like gold stock in gold. I'm talking about like gold bullion. <laughs> I, uh, I had this, I dated this guy who had these crazy friends and his friend's dad was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. And so what he did was he bought 
all of his savings, he he would put it into gold bullion. And he had this kind of like secret bunker somewhere out in the woods of Massachusetts where he had all of his gold bullion stored. Um, and as far as I know, he's continuing to do that because he's still working. And this is not really a great idea. It's not a super liquid asset. And the price of gold fluctuates so much that this is this is kind of insane. What do you think, Maxfield? Well, the first thing I think is that I want to go to Massachusetts and start digging around in the woods. That's the main thing. <laughs> but other than that, so here's how I think about here's how I think about gold. Here, and this is how I would recommend that investors think about gold. Basically, anybody who's thinking about buying gold for any type of investment purposes, as a general rule, investing as gold is a bad idea. And here's why: when you invest, your biggest ally is compound returns because that grows the size of your returns without you doing anything on an annual basis and pretty soon your small returns one or two percent a year turn into 50 percent 60 percent a year on your original basis but in order to tap into compound returns you've got to be invested into an income earning asset and the problem with gold it doesn't earn any assets so your biggest ally as an investor compound returns isn't present when you're buying gold. So that is the main reason that as a general rule, you should avoid gold as an investment. But there are three exceptions to this rule. The first is in times of stress and fear in the market, when people and and money flees to safety. We saw this during the financial crisis, right? When the price of gold per ounce on an inflation-adjusted basis went from $350 an ounce all the way up to $2,000 an ounce, which makes it seem like, oh, well, gold must be a great investment. Well, it is in that, particular, in, in that particular time period. The problem is when you're dealing with times of stress, it's very difficult. It seems easy to, that you'd be able to time the market, get in when it's cheap and get out when it's high, but that is actually a very difficult thing to do. We've seen that. We have quantitative proof that timing the market is very, very difficult. The second exception is in times of severe inflation. So if you look at a gold chart, there's really two huge spikes over the last 100 years. The, the, the first spike was the one I just talked about in the financial crisis. And then if you go back, there's another spike in the late 70s and early 80s when we had double-digit inflation. Gold is good because it can store value in times like that. But right now, you know, anybody who's thinking about inflation being a concern right now, I, I, I would urge you to moderate that belief because we really have no evidence that inflation is anywhere even remotely an issue that the United States is going to be facing anytime soon. Um, so that's something you should probably put to the side. And then the final one, and this is probably where you're getting to with the, with the point of your story, Gabby, is what I like to call a hedge against anarchy, right? You have some people and, you know, that believe that you know, society is fragile and that if society breaks, you're still going to need to buy things and that when society breaks and you're still going to need to buy things, paper dollars won't work. And therefore, gold bullion will be the thing you want to transact with. Well, that's fine and dandy. But what I would recommend is that unless you have just a ton of extra money, you probably shouldn't approach that strategy. Use that strategy because it's not an investment strategy. It's just like sticking toilet paper in your cellar is is basically all that is. Yeah. I mean, if if we do end up in like a world anarchy situation, I recommend that you loot a pharmacy first because I'm pretty sure you know, uh, uh, antibiotics are going to be more valuable than gold at that point. Um, Great advice. (laughs) I'm going to, that's the first thing I'm going to do. That's a good point. Um, so point number three, which is kind of related to point number two, this is, this is really common was, uh, keep cash. And I'm not saying that this is terrible advice in and of itself. I keep cash. Um, used to be a bartender, used to keep 
quite a bit of cash on me at all times. You never know when a business only takes cash. Um, I guess now you do because you have the internet and you can go online and check. But um, some people even try to do all their purchases with just cash because it kind of acts as a psychological curb that says like, okay, well, I'm physically handing over something for this and I'm getting something back. And it makes them, it makes it a little bit harder for them to just impulse buy as opposed to with a credit card. Sometimes there's not that, that feeling that you're really spending anything. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. you know what? Oh, you can go on. Gabby. Sorry. No, it's okay. Go for it. And you know, the thing about cash is that cash has a time and a place. It's what our, our colleague Morgan Housel calls, it gives you optionality, right? If you have a ton of cash and the market tanks, you have the, the, the dry powder, if you will, right, to go out and buy cheap stocks. If you don't have cash, you don't have that. But everything in moderation, right? So as a general rule, again, I, I'm a lawyer, so I think in general rules and exceptions, as a general rule, you're going to want to keep cash. But if you're keeping more than whatever you perceive to be necessary to give you peace of mind in terms of a kind of a safety fund, whether that's six months or a year, if you're keeping anything more than that, you're losing value. Because even though inflation isn't an issue right now, it is still increasing at a half a percent a year or a percent a year. So you're still losing value simply by keeping it in cash. I just want to interject here. And I think that you're misunderstanding me. I mean, yes, you're correct 100% what you just said. But I'm talking about physical stockpiles of cash oh, that you stash oh underneath God. your mattress. This like, is like, very like common Merriweather. Yes, from like grandmas especially, to take your cash and just stash it somewhere in your house. Um, so instead of having a savings account, you just have all of that in cash somewhere. So there's yeah, a few problems yeah. with this, right? So like one, if you have a lot of money, I mean, where are you going to put it all? Um, two, even if it's in a money market account, even though money market accounts aren't making a ton of money, that money could be making some interest in the bank, even if it's not a lot. And three, this is the same issue that you have with gold bullion, which is what if someone breaks into your house and steals all your cash? Or what if your house burns down? Like, your cash is just gone. <laughs> all of your savings. That, can you imagine? <laughs> that would be horrible. It's yeah, it reminds me of, I'm like, laughing, but it's so bad. <laughs> it, yeah, it would be so horrible. Yes, I, I would say that there is definitely an, an added element of actually keeping it in paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this tends to be one that you hear from kind of older relatives who maybe lived through the Depression um, and the bank runs and things like that. But it's, it's not an uncommon sentiment, um, is what I gathered from asking people in the office. Um, so let's kind of flip over to, to good advice that we've gotten. Um, this is advice that I got from my parents who think that they did an excellent job raising me, which I, I personally agree, but you know. Um, which it's is, still out. It's still, the, the jury's still out on that one, Gabby. Noted. <laughs> which is uh, talk to your kids about budgeting and personal finance. You know, Help them get started if you can. Um, I have been shocked by the number of people that I know, young people who getting out of college, for example, they'd never had a credit card, which meant that they couldn't run an apartment by themselves. They couldn't buy a car post-college because they had no credit score. They had nothing. Um, or kids who get their first credit card and they just go hog wild because they don't really understand how it works. Yeah. I mean, when I think about it, I, I have two young boys and I think, you know, you teaching about finance is such a central thing because finance, if you look at what causes stress in so many people's lives later on down the road, it is the inability to manage finances. So if you can cut that off at the past when they're young, it, it, it is a great benefit to them later on. Absolutely. And you hear about all sorts of different methods. Um, for example, if, you, if your kid gets an allowance, um, having them 
have to take part of their allowance and put it into savings, and part of it goes to charity if that's important to you, and then the rest of it can be spending money. That's a really easy way to start young kids understanding how budgets work for them and how they need to save up for things that they want. They can't just blow it all at once because, you know, what happens later on, right? Um, Another bit of advice that that we got was, uh, this is more in terms of stocks, but to buy things that you see around you. Um, so the the story that I got was a friend of mine who's um, was really active in the lacrosse scene growing up, and he would go to tournaments, and all the kids would have Under Armour, and this is back before Under Armour was big. But his parents were like, "Oh, maybe maybe we should buy stock in this thing." It seems like a lot of the the kids are wearing it, um, and that, as you know, Under Armour stock has just gone up and up and up and up. So um, if you have young adults around you. <laughs> Often the things that they find popular and that they're using, they, they tend to be market movers. So that that's a good good way to invest. Yeah. And, it, you know, if you think about, you know, last week we talked about uh, great books that, that we recommend to investors. And one of the top five that, that you had recommended from that was that people at The Motley Fool love is Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street, where he really digs into the buy what you know philosophy and the other great investor that, that kind of delves into the same kind of uh, philosophy in terms of investing is Warren Buffett. But he pitches it as a, uh, you always want to buy investments that were, are within your circle of competence. And that's why, as a general rule, he avoided technology stocks, which have been good, but it just wasn't something that he, that, that he knew about. Absolutely. And you can apply this to your own life in however, whatever way you want. Um, I don't know. For example, I really love burritos. I know what makes a good burrito. So I can go out and try a bunch of different burritos and say, you know what, this is the best burrito I've ever had, and then invest in that burrito company. That's just a, a I guess, a commonplace example, maybe, <laughs> of how that might work. But, you know, the funny thing is, Gabby, you know, you say, you kind of like chuckle about it, but you're right. I mean, right? I mean, like, think about, literally, I can remember the first time I ever ate a Chipotle burrito, and like, I loved it, you know what I mean? And to think back, if I had acted on that impulse and bought stock, well, Gabby, I probably wouldn't be a co-host on the, on the, on the podcast right now. You know what I mean? I'd be living a life of leisure, a oh. life of a gentleman, <laughs> trotting around on horses and doing things like that. Uh, well, I would have a Maxfield-shaped hole in my heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my last point of advice, good advice that I've received, um, again, from my parents, is if at all possible, spend less than you earn. This is a really basic concept that a lot of people seem to have trouble with. Yeah. If, if, just keep this in mind. If you want to be a capitalist, you got to have capital. And the only way you can gain capital if you don't, get, you don't inherit it is by saving, spending less than you earn and allowing that to accumulate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of in the vein of both last week, which is when we gave our book recommendations, mm-hmm. and um, this week talking about good financial advice and um, people who kind of had their, he- their heads screwed on straight. Do you want to talk a little bit about a book that you're reading, Maxfield? You're telling me about it this morning. So the book I want to talk about is it's a biography of a man named Stephen Gerard. So Stephen Gerard was the richest American from roughly the year 1800 until the year 1831 when he died. And what's so remarkable about Stephen Gerard is that not only did he beat all of the odds to become the richest man in America, but he also acted in an extremely, not only patriotic, but very, very kind way, despite his incredible wealth. And so let me just give you a a couple of examples. When he was born, he was born in France. 
and he had a defective right eye that contemporaries described as grotesque. Okay, so now just keep this in mind. Keep in mind the odds that this man is fighting against to then eventually become the richest man in the United States. So he goes on. He becomes a ship captain. He's over in he's in France. He's trading with the West Indies, which are French. Some of them are French colonies. And he's over in the West Indies at one point on Haiti, which it wasn't named Haiti at the time, but he was there right when the American Revolution broke out. And the problem with that, for, from his perspective, was that because he needed to get either back to France or somewhere else, Britain had put a blockade on all shipping because it was both in conflict with France and in conflict with the United States, so he couldn't get back. So what he ended up, where he ended up going was to Philadelphia, which was the biggest port in the United States at the time. And it was eventually going to be the capital of the United States before Washington, D.C. did. So he ended up in this, in this wonderful place for what turned out to be a man with incredible talents, trading merchandise and building a trade network that went all around the world. And so that's how he got so rich. But here's the most interesting thing about Stephen Girard. So in 1793, he'd already he'd gotten to the United States. He'd been there for a while. He'd become one of the richest people in Philadelphia, albeit probably not in the, in the United States at the time. In 1793, there was a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia that killed 10% of Philadelphia's residents. Okay, so one in 10 people in Philadelphia died in 1793 from yellow fever over a period of five months, all right? Well, yellow fever came from, from the West Indies, which... Stephen Gerard, it seems like, because he never came down with it, it seems like he maybe had built up some antibodies to it, but he didn't know it at the time. So the mayor of Philadelphia asked for people, because 40% of the, the city fled, as, you would under, as, 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 as any right, sane person would do, but the mayor asked citizens to stay and help the people that were sick with this extremely contagious disease. Well, Stephen Gerard was one of 12 only 12 in the entire city of Philadelphia who volunteered to stay. But Stephen Gerard didn't just volunteer to stay in some sort of administrative capacity. He volunteered to run the hospital, a makeshift hospital that was called a human slaughterhouse is how they explained it, for yellow fever victims because you couldn't take yellow fever victims to the, Philadelphia, to the Pennsylvania hospital because then they'd affect everybody else. But Stephen Gerard didn't just uh, run this. He actually acted as a nurse in it because he couldn't get enough people to actually help the, the patients. So this is a man who was literally in contact with yellow fever victims, literally helping save their lives at the time that he was one of the richest Americans of all time. And so later on in his life, I mean, he just did all these incredible things. He helped bail out the United States in the midst of the War of 1812, which had we lost, we probably would have lost our independence again to Great Britain. So he's just done all these incredible things. And then at the end of his life, and this is, he really set the tone for what we're seeing now today with your Mark Zuckerbergs, your Warren Buffetts, your Bill Gates that are donating the vast majority of their wealth to charities. He gave 98% of his wealth to charity. But here's what he did. And this is, this is really kind of his crowning achievement, if you will, in all of history. He put the money in trust and then designated people in the city of Philadelphia, positions in the city of Philadelphia, who'd been be the trustees of this trust. And this trust was created for the purpose of endowing, creating and endowing forevermore for a school for low-income orphans, okay, that from all over the United States. This school has been in operation giving full scholarship to low-income orphans ever since it was created in the 1830s. So you're talking about literally 
thousands of lives that are directly impacted by this. And not only those thousands of lives that are directly impacted of this, but these are life-changing opportunities for people because it is a free education from kindergarten all the way through high school. So these people now, there are many of them, we can presume, are probably becoming the first people in their families to go to college, which is a transformative thing for subsequent generations of a family. So, you know, in the spirit of Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and, and all, of these different, all of these different things, you know, and at the same time that, you know, we kind of have this political scene going on where, you know, vitriol is, is kind, of, kind of part and parcel with it. You know, it's just, it's so nice to think about, you know, these people in our history that lived extraordinary, extraordinary lives and extraordinarily kind lives. That's true. Um, do you want to say what the name of the book was and who it's by? I do. Sorry. Let me <laughs> get the name of this right here. It's kind, of, it's kind of a niche book, as you can imagine. <laughs> it's called Stephen Gerard, The Life and Times of America's First Tycoon by a man named George Wilson. It is a phenomenal book. I loved it, every second of it. It's well-written. It's a fantastic story. I highly recommend it to anybody who's listening. All right. Thank you very much for that recommendation. Um, it's time to wrap up now. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Um, thanks very much for joining us. I hope you liked this week's episode. Write to us at industryfocus at fool.com uh, to tell us about best and worst financial advice given to you by your family members. Everyone have a great holiday. <laughs> <laughs>